Hello, and welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast, where we talk about the science of hunting. I'm your host, Mark Lindbergh. Our goal for this podcast is to educate listeners about the how and why things work the way they do in hunting in the outdoor world. All right, uh, welcome to another episode of the Hunting Science Podcast. It's uh, my pleasure today to be talking with Mike Anderson. And he'll give his resume, but uh, Mike is uh, most recently retired biologist with the Ducks Unlimited Canada. And um, I had the pleasure of working with Mike starting in 1987 in uh, Manitoba, Canada. One of my early positions with what was then Delta Waterfowl. And uh, Mike will tell that story a little bit more too, I'm sure, in, in terms of his background. But I've asked Mike here or today to talk to us in this episode because I give him it's I've given him a, a tough task um, a tough job and then I'd like him to walk us through how your votes um, translate into effects on policies that affect the wildlife that we love and hunt and that's not an easy tale to weave because some of that just gets lost in the political weeds. And it takes someone with Mike's background, scientific background and ability in storytelling that you'll hear here soon to be able to pull that off. And so I appreciate Mike being willing to, to do that. And we have a story that's relevant to current times with proposed changes to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which as you'll here has been in place since the early 1900s and has uh, been under attack here lately. And, and I want you to understand how those changes might affect you and your hunting. So um, here in a little bit, Michael start telling that story. Um, before we dive into that, uh, the other reason I invited Mike is because he's got a great radio voice, but apparently he's got a cold, so it's not quite as great as normal. Um, but it's still, it's still good. And, and Mike will apologize, I'm sure, for being a little scratchy today, but hopefully we get him through this podcast. And with that, Mike, if you would, um, tell, us, tell us about yourself and your, your scientific and hunting resume, if you would. Well, thanks, Mark. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Um, I grew up uh, in North Dakota, hunting and fishing and, and uh, loving a rural lifestyle there. I was in my last year of high school, I think, when I conceded that I probably wasn't going to end up playing first base for the Yankees and decided I would head off to uh, try to get a degree in wildlife biology and, and pursue things that I that I loved. Um, anyway, to cut, cut across the details, I, I did that. Uh, and in... Uh, as I was finishing my undergraduate degree in Colorado, I had an opportunity to come to Canada and work at the Delta Waterfowl and Wetlands Research Station. And I took that opportunity and I ended up coming back and doing my master's research there uh, uh, through Utah State and then my doctoral work through the University of Minnesota, um, but all doing work at uh, Delta. And uh, then had the opportunity to remain on staff and work as a research biologist there, which is when I met Mark. Um, much of my work at Delta involved uh, canvasback ducks and factors affecting their uh, productivity and population dynamics. About 1990, I guess, uh, I, I by that time I was a scientific director at Delta, I took the opportunity to, um, to switch to Ducks Unlimited where a group of us got together and, and uh, planned and created something we call the Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research, which became the science arm of Ducks Unlimited in Canada, the U.S., and, and Mexico. And I continued in that um, in that general capacity until I retired about seven years ago. I had the pleasure of working with Mark and a couple of his students uh, during that time too. So we've. Uh, We've connected here and there across the years, and it's always been a, a fruitful collaboration. So anyway, I was glad to, to do that. And I think that probably 
probably will do is a, is a quick overview of who I am and where I came from, Mark. Uh, you're ready to jump into the migratory bird tree? Yeah, I just want to mention one event that occurred when I overlapped with you either in 87 or 88. You, you may not remember this, but it is vivid in my mind and uh, memory that I reference frequently. And to be honest with you, one of my motivations for trying something like a podcast and that that was we were driving around looking at canvas backs. Mike had a population of marked canvas backs and it was fascinating. We we're doing behavioral ecology observations on them and you know Mike knew every one of them by name, which was really cool. But I remember sitting there one day watching a hen that may have been seven, eight, ten years old, and uh, he said, boy, this is really rewarding, but it's not enough. And in the background, there was some uh, machinery clearing some land and maybe even uh, putting some fill into a wetland. And you're like, ah, it's just not enough. I got to do something more. I need to apply my science differently. And it's um, it's taken me a longer journey, but I remember that was um, it was not long after that you really started to get in more directly into conservation efforts, and it's taken me a long time to figure out how to do that in my faculty position. But it's um, it was a statement that stuck with me, and it wasn't just enough to talk to scientists; it was important to try to talk to others, and uh, I appreciate that. I'm 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 glad I'm, I'm glad, Mark. Um, that really was a fairly fundamental switch in my mindset that happened in the in the late 80s, I'd say, mid to late 80s. Because I loved what I was doing and I thought it was all really interesting, but I was frustrated at not being sufficiently engaged uh, in trying to in trying to help uh, from a conservation standpoint in a more direct um, and effective manner. So one of the things that happened to me at that point is I got involved in the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, which was still just on the drawing boards in the mid-80s. Um, but it turned into a 30-plus year involvement with uh, with the plan, where I ended up serving on uh, regional and provincial, regional, national, and, and, and uh, eventually international working groups and committees trying to help provide some direction and, and uh, and guidance for the plan. And one of the things I'm, I look back at my career, most happy about is the progress we made in bringing science into the process of, of evaluating programs and uh, adjusting programs, adapting programs to be more effective on the land. Uh, there were a number of us that had uh, a big hand in that, but uh, that's the look back. Now, one of the more satisfying things that happened during those last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and I know you're you're very modest, and you were telling me I should possibly talk to others for this podcast, but you hit the nail on the head of exactly why I stuck with wanting to talk to you, because I think of the people I interact with, at least, your ability to translate science into applied settings and and um, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan as a prime example is is the best. I think you've been one of the most successful people doing that. And uh, I know we're going to talk about policy today, but behind that policy is science that's been translated by people like you. And um, I think that story is just important to tell and people don't realize how much science is behind this. So hopefully that'll come out today and you'll be satisfied that we're talking about science, not just policy. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Mark. Uh, I appreciate that. So yeah. the topic you gave me was pretty broad, and and I've kind of come around to deciding to focus really on one specific example of, of the way in which the decisions we make politically can have a major impact on on what uh, what ultimately happens to the resource that we we care about, and so I'm going to try to spin a story about the Migratory Bird Treaty and some of the things that have happened over the last few years that impact um, the effectiveness of the treaty. Most people will probably know that back uh, about 120 years ago, there was a growing concern over. Uh, declines in bird numbers, whether it was from market hunting or or indiscriminate 
sport hunting or uh, harvest of feathers for the millinery trade. Uh, there were widespread concerns about the decline of birds. And after trying a few different things, people began to realize that we had to have more than, we couldn't leave all that authority only with the states because there was too much too much variation from place to place and not the coordination needed to really effectively protect the birds. And in fact, it had to be between nations, not just between states because these birds are migratory. So um, Canada and the U.S. Uh, in about 19, well, actually right at the beginning of World War One, tried to pull together uh, the idea of a, of a treaty that they could both live with and support that would help protect migratory birds. It got delayed a bit because of the war, but in 1916, negotiators agreed on a treaty. Uh, at that time, Canada still had to have Great Britain signed for it uh, in, in terms of well, treaties. So they, but people, some people don't recognize that the original migratory bird treaty was actually between Great Britain on behalf of Canada and, the United, and then the United States. But anyway, it was it was a made in, in Canada act by Canadian uh, leaders at the time. Following that, that provided a framework. Then uh, both countries had to develop legislation that would allow them to, you know, uh, enable enable uh, legal developments under the act. So uh, a year later, in 1917, Canada passed the Migratory Bird Convention Act, and in 1918, the U.S. Uh, passed the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which we'll mostly be talking about uh, the rest of, of today. Those were followed in later years by agreements with Mexico, Japan, USSR, and, and others. Uh, but that was the beginning, the, the 1916 agreement between Canada and the U.S. Changing the treaty requires all the parties to agree. And there have only been a couple of times the treaty has changed. Once was to bring native harvest frameworks into uh, the treaty uh, because they were occurring mostly outside the, the season of allowable uh, hunts that were declared in the original treaty. And a conservation order to help deal with overabundant white geese about 20 years ago. The main provision of the treaty was to prevent take prevent killing birds except as prescribed by the federal governments with due consideration for the long-term well-being of populations. So that's, that's how it all began. But traditionally, the application applied to killing birds or destroying their habitats due to things beyond just hunting, um, all kinds of, of industrial impacts or um, impacts by government, infrastructure development or whatever. That policy sort of crystallized around 1970 in the Nixon administration, where a whole host of environmental protection measures came into place during a very conservative administration, uh, by the way. But, but that resulted in a, now about a 50-year pattern of working with industry and government and Fish and Wildlife Service to try to, first of all, avoid harm to migratory birds if that's possible. Secondly, to minimize harm. And finally, if that couldn't be achieved, to mitigate the harm in some fashion, whether it's by creating alternative habitat or, uh, or whatever might be done to help offset damage that might be happening. What do I mean by damage? I mean, examples that folks will recognize in Alaska, the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon uh, disaster in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago. The poisonous tailings in the Butte mines, um, oil sands, tailing ponds, various things where where birds uh, have been and can be seriously um, impacted. But a lot of it's more minor. It has to do with, with development of roads and highways and, and various infrastructure that ends up causing meaningful damage to migratory birds. A good example are things like transmission lines, which can be particularly bad for birds in certain situations. You know, one of the one of the things that's been happening over the last thirty years or so, a happy story, is the increase in trumpeter swans in North America. 
But as new populations are being established and the birds are migrating, it turns out that transmission line collisions are a pretty serious problem for birds as they're learning new country and, and just beginning to migrate. So there's been work done with, with uh, power companies and others in terms of sighting criteria and scaring devices added to lines and things like that to try to mitigate or avoid harm to birds, just this one example. The process can be a little messy at times, but it's worked for more than half a century to, uh, to help avoid um, damage to birds. And, and the Fish and Wildlife Service, I think to their credit in the U.S. has been, and Canadian Wildlife Service too, has been focused mostly on working cooperatively and trying to find solutions to problems rather than just the heavy hand of enforcement and fines and penalties and so on. But that's available as a backstop, right? That's the, uh, that's the, the hammer along with the, with the carrot. Yeah. Um, it's just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I think it's important that you noted this has been going on like this for, well, the act has been in place for over a hundred years, but I mean, this type of enforcement's going on for 50 years, so most listeners, myself included, don't even appreciate that numbers of these birds were one time very low. Um, trumpeter swans, I appreciate because I worked on a project where we analyzed long-term data on their abundance, um, and I recognize how low they were at one time. But yeah, it, it's interesting to hit that benchmark of 1970, because from that forward, there was quite a bit of enforcement, and uh, and not many waterfowl species were in steep decline during that time. No, 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 that's right. That's right. Another, another thing that did flow from some of these enforcement actions, although I said they're trying to find cooperative ways to, to mitigate, but things still happen like the Deepwater Horizon spill, which was, was horrendous. When there are unavoidable damages to migratory birds like that, there has been in place a system of collecting fines for those kinds of, of violations. And uh, in the case of, of uh, Deepwater Horizon, that meant the directing of about $100 million to bird conservation as a result of an estimated loss of about a million birds during that disaster. So pretty consequential money. Uh, I want to touch on, on one thing. Um, it's a bit of an aside here, but the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which was was uh, passed in 1989 by the U.S. Congress, has as its objective um, conserving wetland habitats for migratory birds in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico in support of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and other, and other things. Its source of funds come from three places. One is interest on the Pittman-Robertson funds that are held uh, by the government. These are the funds collected on sporting arms and ammunitions and so on that are returned to do conservation work in the states. But the interest on in those funds while they're held by the government go to this wetland conservation fund. Uh, they also get fines under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and then annual appropriations that require non-federal, U.S. non-federal matching funds. And all of that together, from 1991 to 2018 in the U.S., $1.6 billion federal dollars matched by $3.8 billion non-federal dollars, and that comes from, from states, from Ducks Unlimited, from various sources. All of that has resulted in more than 2,800 conservation projects and 33 million acres of secured habitat in the U.S. and and more habitat than that in Canada. Part of that funding from NACA in the U.S. was matched by uh, additional funding from Canada, something like 1.3 billion of, of uh, U.S. funds matched by matched by uh, more than that amount of Canadian funding. So the result is a lot of good conservation work. And, and fines under the Migratory Bird Treaty help provide some of the funding for that, for that work. Oh, and one more thing before we leave the subject of the Wetlands Conservation Act. This was a huge win for waterfowl in the legislative arena. 
Back in the 1980s, the bill to create the act benefited greatly from strong bipartisan support in both houses, and it has continued that way for many years. George Mitchell, a Democrat from Maine, introduced the bill with Republican support. Then it was enabled under the first Bush administration. It was a case where, again, political support by hunters was a big factor in getting Congress on side at the onset. And every year since then, those same conservation organizations, Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, Ducks Unlimited, Teddy Roosevelt Partnership, and so on, work hard to keep these annual appropriations flowing. The Wetlands Act also featured a brilliant requirement for matching non-federal funds, and it was overseen by a new independent body, the NACA Council. That made it both financially palatable to Congress and a lot more durable. Well, the details aren't that important, but it remains an increasingly rare example of good work achieved with bipartisan leadership, which waterfowl interests historically have proven good at achieving. Anyway, I guess my, my general point here is that the system under the Migratory Bird Treaty from more than 100 years ago has worked pretty magnificently for waterfowl. It's helped gel habitat conservation work a very sophisticated program of harvest management, science support to help improve both harvest and habitat management. Uh, and all of that has resulted in, in pretty robust waterfowl populations. Not, not, a, not every species is in great shape. We know there's three or four that still are at lower levels than we would like to see. Um, scop and northern pintails and widgeon and, and, a, and a few goose populations. But, but think about this. We have had more than 20 consecutive years of liberal hunting regulations in the United States. And we still have birds at very robust levels, despite all the changes that have happened in the continent and all the declines we've seen in many other groups of birds. You know, waterfowl are still doing really well. And so at the base, Migratory Bird Treaty and, and all the structures and initiatives and so on that flowed from that deserve a fair bit of the credit for this being the way it is. You know, most hunters today have no memory of time in the early 60s where we had 30-day seasons in the Mississippi Flyway. There were three duck bag limits. You know, and, and that's just not something that, that current hunters have had to face. Now, having said all that, a lot of other birds are not, a lot of other migratory birds are not doing all that well. You know, they've not had the same uh, commitment by, by an interested group like waterfowl hunters. They've had, they've had less attention from NGO groups with, with deep pockets. Um, all of that's beginning to change. But, but a lot of other birds um, have been declining, and there have been some pretty alarming studies published on that over the last over the last year a major landmark study by a, a group at, at Cornell and, and elsewhere uh, shown that all species combined of uh, birds migratory birds in North America from 1970 to, to 2017 so that's nearly 50 years have shown a 28 percent decline in their numbers that's something like three billion birds fewer than there were in 1970. No declines are happening with land birds, aerial bug eaters, shorebirds, lots of different groups. Waterfowl are the main exception. And some raptors, some, some birds of prey have been bouncing back too since the elimination of um, DDT and things like that. So there still is a, a, a pressing need for migratory bird protection and scaling those things back uh, seems like a fool's errand you know, uh, to many of us. What, why, what, are, the, what are the issues here? Well, um, it seems like there's a key lesson here, too, though. I mean, no doubt there's more science, more work that's been done on waterfowl than many of these bird species, but that alone wasn't enough. It was having people and organizations and funding to apply that science to policy and have administrations that are willing to listen to that science as well. 
I'm just sort of thinking aloud here, but it's, I mean, that's been lacking for some of these other bird species, the smaller birds of less interest for hunters to have signs behind that in terms of documenting some declines, but there isn't a way to take that science and translate it into policy as easily, or it hasn't been done so far. Well, there's, there's a lot of limitations that come into play. I think one is one is the knowledge base, which is getting better for a lot of the other birds. The second is a is a group of stakeholders that have a, a deep vested interest in seeing those birds do better and are willing to invest, whether it's in in protecting um, habitat directly or helping to fund uh, work by non-government organizations or to advocate for policy like like there were a lot of people in the waterfowl world who worked very hard to get conservation provisions put in the 1985 farm bill which has said, which created crp and conservation reserve program in the midwest wetland reserve program linked to swamp buster which which uh, was a prohibition against draining that would reduce access to agricultural subsidies I mean, a lot of this stuff came into place because waterfowl advocates were keen to see government programs that would not only help farmers, but would change the landscape in a way that would benefit the birds. Now, a bunch of other birds, grassland birds and so on, certainly benefited by things like CRP. But the point is, uh, the same as what you just said, really, it, there has to be a constituency of people, first and foremost, who care. And then mechanisms in place, whether it's through the flyway system or through the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, its joint ventures, whatever it might be, has to be a mechanism in place to make these things work. So let me let me jump to the specific case of, of what the current administration in the U.S. tried to do over the last few years. And this is a system that's been working very well for a hundred years. So we're again, I just want to frame it. Um, especially the last 50, trying to, I wonder about why you would want to change this given how well it's been working. It, the phrase that comes to mind rather trite is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But uh, anyways, there were some proposed changes to this system that's working yeah. quite well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I, think it comes, I think it comes down to an administration led by a developer that is inclined to bend over backwards to help other kinds of development have a free hand in what they do. I think that's really the top-down sort of motivation here. Okay. But 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 I'm speculating. Let me let me back up and deal with sort of the facts. Okay. In see, it was December of 2017. So yeah, December of 2017, the government obtained a solicitor's opinion that was diametrically opposed to previous reviews of Migratory Bird Treaty Act, most recent one of which had been completed under the previous administration in January of 2017, so it's only 11 months later. But they looked at the language of the act and they said, you know, really the only thing that was intended here was to regulate activities that were directly intended to kill birds. So hunting, basically. And, and that nothing else, whether it's a, 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 a tailing pond, an oil spill, transmission lines, wind farms, nothing else matters because those aren't designed to try to kill birds. So we're going to stop enforcing that element of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. We'll call it incidental take, okay? It's killing birds even though your primary motive wasn't to kill birds. So that overturned uh, 50 years of practice and, uh, and a, a treaty that had been in place for over 100 years. Well, people reacted to that, of course. Several past directors of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or chiefs of migratory bird management led a communication campaign saying, this is just wrong. We, we, we really should not do this. And that was followed by a set of lawsuits brought by a group of eight states scattered all across the U.S. and half a dozen non-government organizations that 
that filed separate suits saying this just isn't right. And there was even a new bill introduced in Congress called the Migratory Bird Protection Act this past year to restore and strengthen the incidental take provisions. The full house didn't get to vote on it before COVID overtook everything. And it would probably have been dead on arrival in the Senate anyway. But so there were, there were a lot of reactions to this. Happily, on August 11th, so just recently, actually after you and I had begun to first talk about doing this podcast, the Department of Interior's position was overturned by a U.S. District Court in New York, noting that the Migratory Bird Treaty makes it unlawful to kill birds, period. The language of the act says, quote, by any means, whatever, or in any manner. And so they said the administration's interpretation could not be squared with the plain language of the statute, which was a very clear-cut decision. And great, uh, in, in, my, in my view. Hopefully, this means that we're going to get back to work. Uh, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service will get back to work with industry and governments to try to develop some common-sense permitting systems and incentives and, and, and motivation to reduce damage to bird populations. That was already kind of getting underway in the last administration, which is why that January 2017 solicitor's report was requested, because they were setting the stage to do, to do this. But it also, the decision in August, basically tosses this problem back to the Department of Interior, saying what you've done is not acceptable. So either revert or try something different. So I, I don't expect this is done. I expect DOI is likely to come back with, with, with something else. I suspect they don't have time to do that between now and the election. Whether or not they have time to do it between now and, and in January of 2021, I guess time will tell. But you asked the question at the beginning, I'd like to come back to Mark, and that is, so why do this in the first place? Why, why, why give companies sort of free reign to do these kind of things? It's short-sighted in my mind. Uh, it's kind of a anti-regulation developer mindset, but even businesses and, and governments, they need a, a social license to succeed. By that I mean, they need society to support what they're doing. So why is it in an interest of a, of a company to to flout protection of birds that you know people care about and, and and avoid going through a step where yeah it might cost a few bucks but it's going to buy a bunch of going to buy a bunch of goodwill and and long term support uh, to do a better job I think under the old system I mean there was a real incentive to avoid damage and to minimize it and that usually ended up big enough to achieve the protection without creating a real, you know, a real, a real mess or a big fine or whatever it might be. You know, there were a lot of, a lot of bad things that happened in the, because, because as soon as the Department of Interior decided it was going to make that change, uh, that was in January and April, they gave operational orders to stop enforcing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act for things like for things like industrial dumps or or destroying habitat or, or whatever it might be, and so there were there were oil spills. There were there were various developments that that caused losses. There's a really interesting example in Virginia. Um, Virginia had proposed something called the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, which was a, a highway a redevelopment or improvement that proposed to pave over what had become a colonial bird nesting habitat in coastal Virginia. About 25,000 nesting terns, gimmerous gulls, and other things. The Federal Migratory Bird Treaty Act would have prevented that from happening, or at least required some sort of mitigation. The Fed said, no, not our problem anymore. Do what you want to do. But the state, under citizens' pressure, decided on their own, in February of this year, that they were going to mitigate this. So they went ahead and paved over the island during the fall when the birds weren't there. They worked with the Corps of Engineers and constructed a replacement artificial island. They trapped rats there. They added sand and gravel and riprap. 
And lo and behold, it was covered up with nesting birds again this summer. So they managed to move at least a high portion of those birds move, quote move. But those birds relocated themselves when this when this other habitat was provided and did what the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was formally, you know, intended to do. They also committed uh, early in 2020, Virginia, the state of Virginia, to developing their own laws and regulations to enact the kind of avoidance mitigation kind of procedure that the feds had in place up until then. So, you know, there's a state taking on this issue and uh, and doing probably the right thing, even in the in the face of federal uh, neglect of of the issue. So I don't know, Mark. I mean, the Migratory Bird Treaty had served uh, North America well for over a hundred years, with some exception. The waterfowl populations are in good shape. Harvest opportunity is 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 generous. Many other migratory birds are not in that good a position and still require protection and help. But a lot of avoidable damage was minimized, and there are reasonable regulations in place to provide incentives for good behavior. I just I do not see why the administration felt like tossing this aside and risking material changes in habitat and numbers was in the public interest. Yeah, well, there's two things that strike me that are really interesting here. I mean, you have intimate knowledge of this information, and I'm learning as we go along. It's just amazing how, I mean, there, there are certainly more pressing issues right now, COVID being one of them, but this news on these type of topics gets buried a little bit, for sure. I mean, how do people, what's the best source information to stay abreast of these type of issues and how policy is being threatened um, by these kind of changes that, that could translate into effects on hunters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and a lot of it is, is if not under the radar, at least low on the radar screen. I think there are a lot of NGOs that have been doing a pretty good job of, of noticing these things and, uh, and uh, pointing them out to people. And and uh, look, I come from I come from the world of of the private sector. I worked my whole career. I mean, briefly at the university, but then with Delta Waterfowl and, and, and Ducks Unlimited. But credit where credit's due, some organizations like the American Bird Conservancy, National Audubon, some of those folks have been uh, getting this information out, and getting them into the hands of of people uh, and their membership, and uh, alerting them to. To these challenges, um, I want to I want to give special recognition this time, though, to to uh, Paul Schmidt, Dan Ash. I mean, a, a, a bunch of people. Uh, Jamie Clark, former Fish and Wildlife Service directors uh, or heads of migratory bird management, who, when this ruling came out in uh, in uh, in early. In late 2017, early 2018, they were shocked. They were livid. They got on their they they got on their keyboards, and they started organizing. And they were writing letters, uh, and they really had an awful lot to do with alerting the world. In this case, to to the challenges, to the to the risks associated with the kind of changes the administration was proposing, and. Uh, and they get a lot of credit for getting on the horse and, and alerting everybody that the, <laughs> that the administration was coming with something bad and, uh, and, and helped ultimately get it uh, stopped, at least for now. Yeah, it, gives you, it makes you feel good knowing that there's people still uh, uh, not asleep. They're not asleep at the controls that are paying attention to this kind of thing. But I, don't, I do want to remind people how they vote is their individual way of influencing things. And you should try to pay attention to some of this news because your float, your vote could influence some of these policy changes that are going on. Um, you know, here in Alaska, we're watching this proposed pebble mine in Bristol Bay very closely. And if you fish and, and uh, worry about those fisheries, um, how you vote could influence the outcome of that, that uh, decision. So, I, I hope people keep that in mind. 
Yeah, there. Yeah, so much of it tends to be a trade-off between short-term gain and long-term sustainability, and, and those are hard, hard things to wrestle with sometimes, especially when you know in the short term there's there is proposed economic benefit, but that's penny wise and pound foolish in many cases to uh, to let those changes happen because uh, you don't. You don't fix those things once they're uh, once they're developed. In most cases, well, I think that's that hits on the second point. I just wanted to bring up is that the timeline in people's mind, what what constitutes short and long term, I think has just changed through time. I mean, maybe blowing on technology, and you know, now that we communicate so quickly with the text and other means, that um, you know, our timeline is different, but. Having taught wildlife management now for over 20 years, there's few examples this that have been this successful in meeting the goal of long-term sustained, to use that word, um, successful management of, of a species, which was the goals laid out in 1918 and have been successful for, like I said, over 100 years. And it's 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 um, dangerous, I think, to start thinking shorter term on longer term goals like this. Um, we don't get these things back um, usually. You know, once once things change in the wrong direction, um, that ratchet doesn't come back. It seems, and uh, I think it's important to really respect these programs that have had that long term success and. Uh, that's what worries me about these proposed changes here. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the challenges for, for all of us is cutting through the chatter that that all the parties want to throw at you when it comes to campaigns. They, they all seem to seize on, you know, two or three messages and just hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer at those issues. But there's some important things that are below the surface, like you said, below the radar screen. And I really do encourage people to, to look at the track record of what groups do with respect to public lands, uh, clean water, issues like the Migratory Bird Treaty. I mean, things that have the potential to not, not change something just today, but, but have the potential impact the resources we care about for decades. And, and you're going to have to dig and, and find that kind of information. But there's lots of sources out there that can, can help you do that. Um, and I, I encourage people to try to get past the sound bites and look at some of these deeper issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned one of those. Uh, and under this current administration, there has been changes to the Clean Water Act that I think most in conservation would view as a negative change. Um, could you tell us briefly about that change? Well, there, there, have been, there have been several. One has to do with the definition of waters that are covered under the act. And currently the administration is, is interpreting that very narrowly as um, navigable rivers and lakes and and some of the habitats immediately adjacent to those to those waterways. Previously, the interpretation had been more on a watershed basis, where people recognized the, the hydrological and the chemical connections between things like wetlands associated with watersheds as an integral part of the watershed too, and something deserving protection. And that is that has changed. There's also been changes to the standards applied for water quality and so on, which again, uh, I, I don't have time or the, or the information right at my fingertips here to go into that in, in a lot of detail. But uh, again, it's, it's just an example of another one of those things that it's sort of insidious and, and quiet behind the scenes sorts of changes that, uh, that cumulatively matter over time. So I asked you something when we first started talking about this podcast, asked you to do something that as we talked through it, I realized wasn't um, possible, but roughly speaking, we could have anticipated that 
um, these changes had they gone through to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, they would allow loss of birds to not be penalized or it would be allowed to happen. It could translate into loss of hunting opportunities. And we tried to quantify that, which again, seems impossible, but it, that that's a realistic possibility that that would have occurred. Well, it, yeah, it, it gets pretty speculative when you try to put numbers to that because you, you have to imagine uh, kind of what the what the impacts are likely to be over a period of time, and and, um, and that's hard to predict. But you know, one of the one of the ways of, of visualizing it, I think, is that waterfowl populations have been in, in generally speaking in, in good shape, and at at high levels for much of the last. 20 years, and we've had liberal hunting regulations as a result of that. Anything that would change that, anything that would diminish those populations to the point where it would trigger a, a change in regulations to a more restrictive mode, and, and there is a process in place to do that. If, if populations slip, that would absolutely have an effect on the number of, of birds you have an opportunity to harvest. Um, it's hard to predict exactly how or, or when that might occur, but it, it's certainly absolutely within the realm of possibility that any, any substantial decline in, in numbers, uh, you, know, you know, flyway would result in those sorts of changes. Yeah, and, and not to get too much down the slippery slope pathway, but it seems that that could have a ripple effect too. We already know that number of hunters are declining, so now we got potentially more conservative regulations and that could translate into fewer hunters and fewer hundred dollars. I mean, I could see yeah, that yeah. having those type of collateral effects. When we were revising the North American Waterfowl Management Plan in 2012, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that, that um, unlike in the 1970s where bird populations were also high, not quite as high as they are now, but quite high, Back then, we saw a big jump in the number of hunters. Hunters responded to the numbers of birds, and they went up considerably. In the 1980s, early 1980s, we had it was drier. We had uh, we had poor conditions. We lost birds, and we lost hunters. When it got wet, starting about 19 on the prairies, got wet about 1993 or so, and has been doing and things have been pretty good since. Numbers of hunters have not come back to the same level we had in the 1970s, and there might be a whole lot of reasons for that. But the concern is that, okay, if we see a major downturn and another major dip in hunting opportunity uh, in the near future, what's going to happen to those hunter numbers? I mean, because we, we've never had that kind of a change in duck abundance with these kinds of hunter numbers. So yeah, if you, if you, if people give up, if they decide it's, it's, it's not worth it, there's a cascade of impacts that are pretty scary. Um, you know, fewer duck stamps sold, fewer DU memberships or Delta memberships, fewer people maintaining their own hunt clubs and buying expensive water that they have to pump on and on and on and uh, you know, less support for states and their wildlife management areas. Um, all of that could be a, a nasty cascade that could make it much harder for those birds to come back again. Yeah, I'm teaching an introductory wildlife management class now, and I, I think um, few people recognize that hunters still pay the vast majority of the bill for conservation. It depends on how you count that, but roughly speaking, sure. it's about 60% of the bill. And um, you don't have, the trend is that's getting lower and lower and you don't, you don't need to accelerate that. That's not, that's losing yeah. people to hunting is yeah. not going to help conservation right now. Well, and there's no better illustration of that than the, than the trend lines for waterfowl versus a whole lot of other birds. Um, and they're doing well and partly as a matter of, of luck that the prairies have been wet lately, partly, you know, a few things, but, but the biggest difference 
are the hunters, the, the constituency out there that cares about the birds, are willing to put some sweat equity and some bucks into uh, conserving habitat and uh, the systems that help look after the birds. Anyway, I just, you know, you think back to the, the potential um, consequences of removing protection from migratory birds for all reasons other than hunting. And um, I think I think that was a terrible decision by the Department of Interior. I'm thrilled that uh, a bunch of people working hard together have, have allowed that to be stopped at this point. And uh, I guess I'll leave you with the thought that I think it's a lot better to see a duck in the mouth of a good retriever than floating unprotected um, in a tailings pond. That's a, that's a thought. That's a image that um, people can leave with. And the way to prevent that is to participate and be informed and vote. And uh, hopefully folks will do that. Certainly. Being, being informed and, uh, and acting on what you learn is uh, the important responsibility of a citizen in any democracy. Yep. So I ask a lot of the guests to finish with a hunting story, and I know you have a couple good ones. The one with uh, Henry Merkin and freezing, the lake freezing in the middle of the hunt it comes to mind. But I was wondering if you would tell us about canvasbacks you mentioned early. And I know there were some favorite girls of yours that uh, had quite a story behind them. I was wondering if you would share with listeners sure. that kind of story. Sure. By the way, I just um, I just got a band recovery for a bird we banded in Minto Flats in 2010 as an adult female, a pintail, and it was just recovered in British Columbia on September 3rd of this year, and so she was at least 11. Was it an adult when you banded it, or a young bird? It was an adult female when we banded it in 2010 in July, late July 2010, and I. I must admit, I'm trying to weave the story together of why she was already in British Columbia, but you know, there's some possibilities there, and it's like, huh, um, or why she was in Alaska in 2010 in July. So, yeah. Anyways, I know you have stories like that of your marked canvasbacks that I've always enjoyed. Sure, I'll I'll, I'll tell you one. I uh, it's working with Mark Birds was was. Tremendous fun, and and you know this because you worked with mark birds through much of your career, different species. But there was a there was a bird uh, called nine X. Had a white plastic nasal saddle, nine on one side, X on the other. And we caught her. We was uh, Jerry Suri with the Fish and Wildlife Service and myself. We we caught her uh, night lighting on a pond. I want to say in nineteen seventy five or so anyway um she had this very predictable habit where she would she came back to nest uh somewhere and and they have canvasbacks have a home range of something like a square mile depending on on how wet or dry the conditions are in, in any year um she nested various places but she always took her ducklings she always took her ducklings to a pond uh, along the road, conveniently, that was about 300 yards or so from the big wetland where we marked her as a duckling. And she'd keep them there until they were about half grown. And then, which is typical of cans, they'll move when they're about half grown because their food habits kind of start to change, their food preferences start to change for the ducklings. And she'd walk them through a pasture about that 300 yards back to the pond where we caught her as a duckling. And she did this year after year after year. And she was very successful. And uh, I last saw her in 1987. She was 12 at the time. And I knew that I had to catch her again because the washer holding her nasal saddle on had, had, had worn off. And I could tell that it wasn't going to be long before that marker would be lost. And I tried three times to put a trap on her nest, and she would not go in. She would not go in. And, and so at the 
touching that brood than I do about getting a marker on you again. And she dashed the brood and, uh, and came back uh, to the pond where she was raised as a duckling. And that's the last I ever saw of her saddle. There was a bird back (laughs) the following year without a marker uh, and a pretty white throat, which is common in older birds. But I could never, 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 never handle her again to know whether it was her. Now, the interesting part of the story is that in 1983, so she would have been eight at that point. I was uh, visiting a student who was doing work um, on wintering uh, cans at Lake Matamesquite in North Carolina, Jim Lovern, who you know. Yep. And we were sitting on the dike watching birds, and I saw a little group of cans that were swimming up toward the dike, and I recognized one of them had a marker on. And lo and behold, it turned out to be 9x. <laughs> so a bird that I had uh, followed for, at that point, sort of eight years, of what would eventually be 12 or 13, swam up and said hi <laughs> in coastal North Carolina one winter day, which is the only bird I ever, I, was, I saw other markers, the only one I was ever able to identify. <laughs> And roughly how many canvas backs were in that flyway that about then tens of thousands. Well, they are, and, and they're an interesting exception to the rule of typical north-south migration, right? Because this is, Manitoba's over the middle of the continent, and this bird is on the Atlantic coast. But cans are one of those uh, few species, tundra swans or another, where they basically do a northwest-southeast kind of migration. And, uh, and cross around the Great Lakes or the Finger Lakes and then down the Atlantic coast, as well as from going down the uh, Mississippi Flyway. No, that's anyway, a neat story. I was but, it was but it was a meaningful sighting for me anyway. No, that's very neat. Yeah. And I don't think people uh, recognize that. Okay, people probably wonder, but it's a lot of fun to catch canvas backs, too. I just, you sparked a memory of. Um, trapping the the ducklings while they're flightless and uh the the way you do this is you put on wetsuits because it's cold water in the prairie still then and and swimmers itch is really bad but you float you bob along and try to drive them into these nets that lead to a pot and you know if invariably birds will turn around and try to dive and come back at you and so mike had a system to motivate catching those birds and it was if I recall, if you caught one that was traveling back a lead, you got a, a beer. But if you caught one in open water, it was a uh, it was worth a six pack. And uh, I remember scoring some six packs. So uh, and you always paid up. So I uh, I wish I wish we were on the video because I've got a great picture of you <laughs> and uh, and a bunch of your a bunch of your uh, your associates. Uh, and, and made up drive trapping gear that was one of my one of my classics. I've shown it many different many different talks over the years. Well, we could post that yeah. with the podcast. Again, okay, I'll yeah. get it to you. Yeah, I no, it to you. you guys are all made up and in black and camo and and uh, yeah, it's a pretty good shot. I think that was me bringing my Marine Corps um, training to the drive trapping scene and we were being the pond as I recall so you're being the pond yes right not a ghillie suit but pretty close (laughs) all right well thanks Mike that was a very good story and uh both the uh migratory bird treaty act and the the canvas back story that would be a subject of a podcast in itself if we went into depth of your your work on canvas backs which was really neat stuff um any close, last closing thoughts? I mean, I think we hit on most points. Anything you want to finish up with? I just I just offer my thanks to you for what you're doing. Uh, I think an effort to uh, help more and more folks understand some of the science behind conservation for waterfowl and, and other, other wildlife 
is important um, to appreciate the complexity of trying to influence public policy, um, um, the challenges of, of sustainable harvest management. All these things are, are topics that you've uh, you brought to your listeners, and I, I think that's a real service. I appreciate the fact that you're doing it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and like I said at the beginning, it probably, who knows if I would even taken that on if someone like you hadn't influenced me to thinking that way. It's, it took me a while to get my head above water. And, you know, you've got other other things that you got to get done, but um, it's been fun. It's convinced me i got to retire so I could do this full time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great to talk to you, Mark. You too, Mike, and uh, take care, and I hope you feel better soon. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.